1: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
2: The fight against COVID-19 has brought a wealth of new biotechnologies to the fore. What is the potential for RNA... Beyond the pandemic.
1: The use of RNA in medicine, I think, is probably only just beginning.
2: Hello, and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Cucquier, a senior editor at The Economist. Also, coming up on today's show, we explore the intellectual revolution of quantum theory. The description the quantum
3: mechanics gives of the world is not in terms of properties of things, but property of things when they interact
2: with something else. And imagine a world where materials like road surfaces can fix themselves. It's
0: inevitable that animate materials will replace the inanimate materials we have previously built everything from.
2: First up, While COVID-19 may have upended our daily lives, fighting a novel coronavirus has been transformative for the advancement of science and technology. Over the past year, scientists have been working fast to create effective tools to stunt the pandemic, most notably the development of vaccines. I received my job last week, the Oxford University-designed AstraZeneca vaccine. Yes, that one. It is based on a conventional vaccine method using a little bit of the coronavirus's genetic material combined in a harmless chimp virus. But many other people around the world have received vaccines based on a new approach using messenger RNA technology.
4: Pfizer and Moderna vaccines rely on a new kind of approach to the science RNA. These vaccines introduce a set of instructions, mRNA, enclosed in a little blob of fat. This is the
2: first time that mRNA technology has been used in an approved vaccine and the future looks healthy for the molecule.
1: Most people would have heard of DNA, which is the material in which genetic information is stored and passed down the generations.
2: Jeff Carr is the science editor of The Economist.
1: RNA is copied from that. It's a slightly different molecule, but not very different. So it's written in a similar four-letter genetic alphabet, and that molecule then goes off and does lots of different jobs in the cell. It used to be seen as a fetcher and carrier and have fairly simple jobs just carrying genetic information to places where proteins are made. It's now known that in actual fact it acts as the cell's operating system.
2: Okay, so what is messenger RNA?
1: Messenger RNA is the molecule that is copied from a DNA and it goes out into the rest of the cell called the cytoplasm and is picked up by structures called ribosomes, uh, which are the factories that make proteins.
2: So how does mRNA COVID vaccines work?
1: The mRNA in the genetic alphabet encodes a protein can encode any protein. It just depends on the order of the genetic letters. So if you make a messenger RNA molecule which encodes the spike protein of COVID viruses, which is the one that's found on the outside of the viral particle, and you put it into cells, the ribosomes will turn out spike protein. And this is then released into the body, and the immune system can learn about it, learn to recognize it, and therefore learn to react rapidly if it comes in the form of a virus.
2: The first time that mRNA has been used in an approved product is in the COVID-19 vaccines, but scientists have been working on mRNA solutions for a long time. So why didn't it work before, and how did they get it working now?
1: It wasn't that it didn't work before. It was just a very lucky coincidence. There are several companies that have been working on this over the past decade or so. It takes a while to develop a new biotechnology. It was a lucky coincidence for humanity that the processes has been worked out and the technology developed just before COVID arrived. It was available some time before that, we were talking a year or two, but none of them had actually been developed. And then the virus came along and suddenly all the stocks were pulled out.
2: So what other applications are there for the molecule?
1: Well, there are two main ones at the moment which are being tested. One is a vaccine for other sorts of virus, actually, things like Zika virus. But the other and I think much more interesting approach is that you can also use this to try to vaccinate against cancers because cancers display odd proteins on their surfaces. Sometimes they display natural proteins in unusual patterns and sometimes they display mutated proteins because the mutations are what's driving the cancer, allowing the cancer cells to replicate out of control. So if you make mRNA for those proteins and inject it as a vaccine, The idea is that you will be able to vaccinate against cancer. The immune system will learn the rogue proteins and it will attack cells that have them in.
2: So this is really interesting. Tell me more about how we would use this for personalized treatment for cancers.
1: Well, if the vaccine is directed against one of the mutated proteins or some of the mutated proteins, these proteins vary from cancer to cancer. And very often there are a lot of mutations because what often happens in a cancer is that the DNA repair mechanism goes wrong. So there is a mutation in one of the DNA repair genes. The DNA ceases to be repaired and lots of other mutations arise. That means every cancer is different and critical mutations will cause critical different sorts of cancer. So they can be classified into groups, but you can also devise with the messenger RNA vaccine method, a vaccine which is specific to a particular person's cancer. You extract healthy cells from them and cancer cells from them and sequence the genomes and compare the genomes and look at where the differences are. And those are the mutations which are in the cancer. And then you make messenger RNA against, you know, a dozen, two dozen of those mutated proteins, inject that, and with a bit of luck, it will arouse the immune system to attack the cancer.
2: The Economist recently spoke to Aslem Tereci, the co-founder of BioNTech. She explained that their mRNA-personalized cancer vaccines work... Is progressing fast
5: we have been in the field of personalized cancer vaccines with mrna for more than five years now and the concept is that you generate for each and every patient their personal cocktail on an mrna basis which vaccinates against the tumor which means a patient is diagnosed We get the tumor, we get the sequence. We are generating the vaccine and the patient who needs it back first because the tumor is continuing to grow gets the vaccine back. And in this platform, we need approximately four weeks in our ongoing clinical trials. And we have done this many, many times for cancer patients, which means this shows how potent the platform is to get it to a very short duration, which you need, technically. But then there is all this regulatory and quality stuff around that, through which we have to go with the authorities so that they believe that the process is basically not changed.
2: Jeff, scientists can also use mRNA for more than vaccines. What else can they be used for?
1: You can use it to make any protein you like. So if there are diseases that are caused by an absence of a protein, then you might be able to stimulate a cell to make that protein. And one thing that's being looked at is that when people have heart attacks, their heart tissue dies, often they would benefit from having more blood vessels. And there is a blood vessel growth factor called VEGF, which if you could stimulate its production, might cause new blood vessels to grow. And that is a project which is in trials at the moment. It's not been approved but it's being tested for safety and efficacy. Also, there are other ways besides vaccination that you can attack cancer cells and viruses. You can attack viruses by stimulating the production of antiviral proteins and you can attack cancer cells by stimulating the production of specially designed antibodies. You might be familiar as monoclonal antibodies. So you work out what the antibody is in advance and then you make the mRNA to attack it and that's released into the Bloodstream. That's different from vaccination because you are, in effect, making an artificial immune system.
2: Now, you make the whole process of developing these treatments sound so simple. What are the challenges with using mRNA?
1: There are several challenges. One, The molecule itself is quite fragile, so you have to wrap it up in metaphorical cotton wool to get it to where it's going. The cotton wool is actually fatty molecules known as lipids, and the mRNA sits inside them. You have to protect it from the immune system because a lot of viruses, including the one that causes COVID-19, their genetic material is RNA, so any RNA that looks alien is going to get attacked by the immune system on the assumption that it's viral. So you can wrap it up in lipids, and you can also change its chemistry slightly in order to stabilise it. Although you can't change it too much, otherwise it won't be recognised by the ribosomes, which are the factories that make proteins.
2: Jeff, it sounds like we're at this interesting breakout point where all of our science fiction is coming true.
1: Well, that's a slight exaggeration, but the use of RNA in medicine, I think, is probably only just beginning. It's much easier to fiddle around with RNA, which you can just, I call it click and collect. You can shuffle the uh, various genetic letters around and produce any molecule you want. So in principle, you can tinker with all sorts of physiological processes that the existing pharmacology can't do. And there's a lot of proteins that are called undruggable because you can't get at them with conventional drugs. But you don't have to get at the protein with the RNA. You can get at the manufacturer of it in the first place. You can upregulate it or downregulate it, or you can edit the messenger RNA from which is made. If you want to tinker with it, you don't have to edit the DNA, which is another approach. So the things that you can do in principle with RNA, once we understand how RNA works better, are very wide ranging. And so this could conceivably be a big change in the way that medicine works.
2: Jeff Carr, thank you. Thank you, Ken. You can hear more from the Beyond Tech couple, who are the co-founders of the company, on our podcast, The Jab. Be sure to listen to the episode from March 15th called How Will Behavior Change? And be sure to keep up with the latest on the global vaccination race every Monday with The Jab from Economist Radio on your favorite podcast app.
4: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation...
2: For a couple of centuries, the world of physics seemed to be completely described by the principles set out by Isaac Newton. This Newtonian mechanics was intuitive. Push more, get more acceleration. Any action has an equal and opposite reaction, and so on. But by the turn of the 20th century, physicists had started to see holes in that theory. Increasingly sophisticated experiments were starting to lay bare the inner workings of atoms and some inexplicable properties of light. In time, it became clear that these weren't special cases to be accounted for in Newtonian mechanics, but rather, Newtonian mechanics was a special case in a far grander theory.
3: The quantum revolution is perhaps one of the greatest stories in the history of science.
2: Carlo Rovelli is a professor of theoretical physics.
3: We realize that small things, atomic things, don't work the way the things around us work but actually everything is quantum so what we really realized is that if we look carefully nothing works in the way we thought it worked in a sense it has replaced the immense success of newtonian physics newton has given us uh, tools for describing the world that has worked fantastically for 200 years well they don't work completely well now we have better ones which is quantum mechanics that for the moment
2: works so far perfectly Quantum mechanics has proved fantastically successful at describing and predicting nature at its tiniest levels. In his new book, Helgoland, Carlo Rovelli invites the reader to see the world through the lens of quantum theory, where objects exist only in terms of their interactions with one another. It's a view that, he believes, has consequences for science more generally and beyond. The description
3: that quantum mechanics gives of the world is not in terms of properties of things, but property of things when they interact with something else. So it's like a pen has a position only when it interacts with something else, and when it doesn't, we describe it like if it had many positions
2: at the same time, spread in space. Kilad Amit is a science correspondent at The Economist. He asked Carlo Rovelli, what are the benefits of the success of quantum theory?
3: For a century, absolutely everything that is predicted, the thanks to quantum mechanics, turns out to be right. It's just astonishing because a few human enterprises <laughs> work so well. Now, perhaps one day we'll, we'll find something where it fails everything fails at some point. But for the moment, it always works. And we use it for a lot of things. We use it for computers, for instance. The design of the electronic microcircuits based on semiconductors requires quantum mechanics. We use it for many medical applications. The RMI that doctors use to look inside our body is based on quantum mechanics. In fact, it really puts our body in a sort of superposition of different positions, so to say, in the in the small. So it uses heavily quantum mechanics. Nuclear plants are based on quantum mechanics. Lasers, which are all over. For instance, uh, automatic doors that open and close when you pass uses lasers, which are based on quantum mechanics. Uh, and so on. And in science, uh, chemists, biologists, astrophysicists uh, use quantum mechanics daily. So it's not an exotic thing. It's uh, deeply ingrained in the current science, in the current technology.
1: It works perfectly well. You describe quantum physics as being very ordinary, in a sense, and yet many of our listeners may well think of the word quantum as a synonym for weird or mind-bending. I wondered if you could guide us through the thought experiment, which is, I think, now very much embedded in popular culture, Schrödinger's cat.
3: Yes, Schrödinger has been one of the main players in the construction of quantum mechanics, has uh, invented this little parable which captures the mystery of quantum theory. The idea is that if you take a cat, a cat is just a microscopic object, something large, and you put it in a box with a quantum system and you do the calculations, what quantum mechanics tell you is that uh, it gives you a, a good account of what you're going to see when you open the box. But in between, before you open the box... The theory is telling you that the cat is in a superposition of two different states. For instance, if the quantum system has a little poison that could open and kill the cat or not, then the cat could be in a superposition of a dead cat and a live cat. In my book, I prefer a sleep cat and awake cat, because I don't like to joke on dying cats. But the point is that if we believe that that cannot be, because a cat is either asleep or awake, it's not the two at the same time, then we put this in the calculation and the results come out in contradiction with what we observe. So the theory is in some sense really telling us that the cut is neither one thing nor the other thing when we're not looking or more precisely when nothing is interacting with it. Because I don't believe that it's us looking that makes any difference. It's just whether things are interacting or not that makes a difference. But uh, that means that the the properties of the cat or any other object of the universe uh, don't exist unless it's interacting with something else. And this is uh, strange and mysterious. And currently there are a number of different attempts to make sense of that.
1: So the relational interpretation of quantum mechanics has as one consequence that all properties are only meaningful relative to something else. Does that have consequences for the way we as human beings see ourselves, or does it only apply for small-scale quantum objects?
3: That has direct consequences only with respect to small things, because uh, for large things, this relational aspect of the world gets, so to say, diluted and almost invisible. But conceptually, the consequences are big. It's a little bit like the Copernican revolution. We discovered that the Earth moved. Does it have consequences for our day life? No, because the motion of the Earth doesn't really affect our everyday life. We have to do careful measurement or to look outside to see it. But nevertheless, discovering that the earth moves changes completely our perspective on reality and discover that they are not the center of the universe even more. So I think it's the same for quantum theory. We can keep thinking that a chair is a chair and it's an object which has its own properties because its relational aspects are too small to capture it. However, we think in terms of relations already in much of our thinking. Economy is about relations. Psychology is about relations. Chemistry is about relations between things. So relational thinking is all over. And uh, to realize that relational thinking works better Than think in terms of things, I think it's a major paradigm shift, a change of perspective that should have an influence on culture in general, I believe, like the Copernican Revolution did. If we think about ourselves as a network of relations with other people and with other things and with nature around us, I think we have a more deep and more Useful understanding about ourselves. then if we think as individual entities first that have you know properties and exist by themselves and then after that interact with something else. so I think that uh, realising the fundamentality of thinking in terms of relations uh, and uh, understanding objects, animals, psychology, structures, societies um, as nodes in a network. Uh, more than as an entity by themselves, uh, It's a general teaching that can be taken out from this great step in, in modern physics.
1: Carlo Rovelli, thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much. And our thanks to Gilad Ahmet. Potholes are frustrating for drivers and they're damaging for cars. Damn it. Oh, no. In fact, drivers spend nearly £1 billion a year in Britain alone on repairs to vehicle damage caused by potholes. But what if the road surface could rebuild itself? Engineers in Britain are working on how to develop new animate materials, which could do just that with applications from robotics to the walls of your house.
0: Animate materials are materials that have the ability to interact with the environment. So they're not inanimate. Things don't just happen to them. They do stuff.
2: Mark Miodovnik is Professor of Materials and Society at University College London, and he's leading a report from the Royal Society on the potential of self-healing materials.
0: They also sense the environment and can compute their response. They know when they're injured or cracked, and they can do something about it. We have self-repairing concrete that does it already. If it's cracked, it will heal itself. Bacteria have always been harvesting stuff from the environment and building minerals. And that's what it's doing inside the concrete. It basically builds a mineral calcite, which then heals the crack. And because it completely fills the crack, it stops water ingress. We have paints that self-repair. They're on high-end cars, actually. So if they get scratched, the scratch disappears over a few days. We decided to publish this report because we know that this area is going to grow and we wanted the public to understand, you know, where it's coming from, why it's inevitable that these materials will replace the inanimate materials we have previously built everything from.
2: Tell me a little bit more about the gamut of where we can expect these new materials to go.
0: Infrastructure is our big issue. The more usage it has, the more cracks it has, the potholes in the road, the bridges have cracks, the tunnels uh, get flooded. All of those reduce the lifespan of that infrastructure. We rely on our infrastructure for our modern lives. And yet the whole business model is build and repair, build and repair, build and repair, which is very expensive in terms of CO2 emissions, but also it's very inconvenient. If we have roads that heal themselves, you know, if if small cracks don't grow into potholes, if we have bridges which are very inaccessible to repair or even to paint and clean, if they're taking care of themselves, humanity is going to enter a new realm of making stuff.
2: Now, I love the vision. It's so interesting that the science is actually going to deliver on it. But how do you build animate materials?
0: Well, at the moment, we have the separate bits of the technologies that are creating self-repairing materials and materials that can actuate under certain conditions, i.e. a temperature change, and materials that can sense their environment. We have materials that change colour, for instance, with heat and change colour with humidity. As we look further into the future, we've realised that We need to put it all together to make a material that, let's say, conducts electricity, you can make a silicon chip out of, or is transparent for a screen that can understand it's being damaged and do something about it. That's going to require us to go back to the nanoscale and build all these capabilities from the bottom up.
2: Let's look at the issue of the pothole and the small cracks in the asphalt that then doesn't become a pothole. Explain to me how that would work. And when can we expect that sort of thing to be rolled out?
0: Well, asphalt is what we currently make most of our roads from. It's a mixture of tar and aggregate stones. It's an amazingly good material uh, for what it's trying to do. But of course, we all notice that potholes arise and that's a big load on the economy. But it's also a driver of economic growth because there's loads of companies out there whose business model is to build roads that then develop potholes and they then have the contracts to repair them again. By stopping the small cracks in the road growing into big potholes, which is what happens, we have to change the business model of how to build the road. So there's two things that we can do. One is we can make roads out of animate materials. And two, it has to come from a change in business model of how we build our infrastructure.
2: Okay, so these are new materials and they have really interesting properties. Could they be dangerous?
0: As we start to build materials that have got more agency, that are detecting damage, and able to do something about that damage, we're going to have to engineer into them the possibility of them harvesting energy from their environment. Because Essentially, to keep dynamicism going, they have to be more alive. And and to be more alive, they need an energy source. And so the question is, what's the worst case scenario here? Are we looking at roads that will suddenly grow sort of cancerous nodes like uh, the body does? Or are we looking at roads that might self-destruct Uh, suddenly, unexpectedly, because their sort of programming has gone wrong. I think these are issues that are serious issues that we should really think about in the protocol in which we build these materials from the bottom up.
2: And what about sustainability? Are these materials sustainable as well? Or does it require additives that are not particularly green?
0: The big sustainability opportunity for these materials is that they will last for longer. And a lot of the CO2 emissions for all our concrete that we make is to do with actually making that concrete in the first place. If you make a bridge last for 200, 300, 400 years, then you're offsetting that CO2 emissions over a much longer period of time. And also, if these materials are harvesting energy from the environment and repairing themselves, then you're also making savings there. On the other hand, at some point, all of these things are going to have an end of life, and we need to think about them now before we go much further down the road. And as you say, if what we're making them from has ingredients that we don't want to leak into the environment, then we need to think about it now.
2: So interesting. Professor Miodovnik. thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Babbage. For lots more news and analysis, make sure you subscribe to The Economist. You can read Jeff Carr's full essay on the RNA molecule or find out about the link between animal diets and fermented food. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. The producers of Babbage are the wonderful Jason Hoskin, Abisoye Oshendairo, Amika Shortino-Nolan, and the editor is Sandra Schmueli. Fabulous friends and colleagues all. I'm Kenneth Kikie, and in London, this is The Economist.
4: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation...